Welcome to the February edition of the EVJ podcast. I'm your host, Rhiannon Morgan. Our guests today are Dr. Richard Reardon discussing empyema of the nasal conchal bulla as a cause of chronic unilateral nasal discharge, and Ebony Escalona describing her research into thoroughbred metabolomics. Professor Paddy Dixon and Dr. Richard Reardon of the University of Edinburgh have recently completed a study looking at 10 cases of empyema of the nasal conchal bulla as a cause of chronic unilateral nasal discharge in the horse. The development of equine three-dimensional computed tomography, or CT imaging, has made complex anatomy of the head much more accessible, providing insight into anatomical variations between horses and facilitating diagnoses of conditions that were previously concealed. Due to this, the once previously named ventral concobulla has been renamed the maxillary septal bulla to more closely describe its anatomical location. And the structures we will discuss today have been termed the dorsal and ventral concobulla. Today I have Richard with me to discuss their findings. He is one of the senior lecturers in equine surgery. So Richard, in your paper you describe two structures found within the head. Um, and they're positioned rostral to the conchal sinuses. And these air-filled air structures have been named the dorsal and ventral conchal bulla. Um, so my no knowledge of head anatomy, especially of the paranasal sinuses, is a bit rusty. Could you give us a brief description of the anatomy of the conchal bulla and describe how they relate to the conchal sinuses and the nasal passages? Yep, no problem. Um... The anatomy of the conchal bully is relatively poorly described um, and warrants further examination, which is something that we've started to do here at the vet school in Edinburgh. Um, from what we know, the bully are air-filled structures with thin bone and membranous walls, and they, they have multiple partial vertical internal septi, so they're divided into multiple little parts. Um, they sit rostral to the paranasal sinuses, so they're in front of them towards the nostrils, um, and they don't normally communicate with those sinuses. They lie lateral to the nasal cavity and are partially enclosed within the conchal scrolls. Um, you can access them via the middle nasal meatus with an endoscope, um, and you can get to them by going across the middle meatus and see them on their lat lateral sides. And from there, you can see the ventrolateral aspect of the dorsal concobula and the dorsolateral aspect of the ventral concobula, so the, so the outside um, parts of them, essentially. Um, notably, we use a, a narrow endoscope here. Um, we use a paediatric one, and it can still be quite difficult to get access to the bully, um, particularly to the ventral concobula. And it's even more difficult if there's mucosal inflammation, um, which there often is in disease. So when horses experience conchal disease, um, what clinical signs do they present with? And how often is this disease related to paranasal sinusitis? So most commonly horses present with signs identical to those affected by paranasal sinusitis, i.e. they have a unilateral mucopurulent nasal discharge, unilateral submandibular dibular lymphadenopathy, and they sometimes have a, a bad smell from the nostril. Um, some cases have also had appreciably reduced airflow from the affected nostril. Um, notably, though, most cases are concurrently affected by paranasal sinusitis, so distinguishing the clinical signs between the two conditions can be difficult. Although the bully do not have any direct communication with the paranasal sinuses in normal horses, 
in our case series, seven of eight cases had concomitant paranasal sinusitis. Um, so it would seem reasonable to suggest that the presence of sinus inflammation and empyema in close association with the bully could predispose them to infection, especially when we consider that they sit rostral to the paranasal sinuses, so drainage from the sinuses runs close to the bully. This sinus drainage pathway may also explain why the ventral conchal bully were more commonly affected than dorsal ones in our case series. So in the diagnosis of conchal bully disease, what imaging modalities are useful and what's the most useful? So the simple answer to this is is CT. Um, And recently, in light of our CT studies, we've spent some time evaluating radiographs to see if we can recognise the bully. While it is frequently possible to see the outline of the dorsal conchal bulla, the ventral conchal bulla can be very difficult to detect radiographically. In addition, the reduced airspace at the more ventral level of the nasal cavity makes interpretation of increased opacity more difficult. In some cases, it is possible to diagnose nasal conchal bulla empyema with nasal endoscopy alone, provided you can see into the bulla. But as mentioned previously, access to these structures can be difficult and without specific landmarks, it can be difficult to determine whether mucosal enlargement or permanent material drainage is from the paranasal sinuses or the bully. As a consequence, we now routinely recommend head CT for nearly all cases of chronic unilateral nasal discharge, which has the major added benefit of determining if there is dental etiology to the sinusitis and allows us to plan our treatment approach, giving us confidence that we haven't missed anything. How would you deal with empyema in the conchal bulla? Um, And what's the prognosis once it's been treated? So our approach to dealing with empyema is to try and establish drainage, uh, which in most cases requires fenestration of the bully. Um, Ideally, this is performed on the ventral and rostral aspects of the bully, i.e. their most dependent parts to to sort of aid drainage. Um, We've made the fenestrations in a number of different ways, um, the first cases we dealt with, we used a transendoscopic laser, um, which provides good visualisation and control of the fenestration, um, but it can be quite difficult to do, um, which is possibly because of the thin bony walls associated with the bully. Um, and um, another concern we've had after a few cases was that it can result in sequestration of the bone. Um, as well as using the laser, we have used um, alternative techniques which have includes, included use of a bistry knife or another um, narrow-pointed instrument um, passed up the nose under endoscopic guidance. Um, and more recently, I've used laryngeal grasping forceps, again under endoscopic guidance, to, to get access to the front of these bully and, and, and tear a hole into them. The prognosis for the cases we have dealt with has been very good once drainage has been established and um, inspissated material has been removed. Um, Some cases have required subsequent removal of sequestered bone um, and one case uh, which we're sort of dealing with currently has um, a recurrent formation of a cystic-like structure at the site of its dorsal conchal bulla. So um, that's taking a bit more effort to get right. So do you think these anatomical structures should be routinely assessed in in a sinusitis investigation? Um, Ideally, Yes, I think they should be. Um, And we routinely try to look at the sites of the bully during nasal endoscopy. 
Sometimes it's possible to see swelling at the level of the bully, i.e. rostral to where you think the sinuses are, and certainly rostral to the sinus drainage angle. Um, the swelling is normally more obvious from the dorsal conchal bulla than the ventral, in my experience. Um, and in some cases, um, as we described in our case report, you can actually see permanent material coming from uh, the, the bully themselves, and, and that can that can really help. Although um, knowing your position and depth up the nose can can make it more challenging. You've diagnosed a high frequency of conchal bulla disease by CT. In the past, have these conditions been missed and gone untreated, or do you think there's an increase in the frequency of this condition? Um, we don't know the definite answer to this, but yes, the frequency of the condition does seem quite high. Um, as we stated in the paper, 23% of cases of paranasal sinusitis that had had CT examination were observed to have concurrent conchal bulla disease. Um, since the publication of the paper, we have seen many other cases, so it's not an uncommon condition, but we cannot think of a, a reason that this disorder would be increasing in frequency. Our best guess is that it was either missed and untreated in previous cases, and or it was recognised and treated but misdiagnosed as paranasal sinusitis, in particular as fistulation of the ventral conchal sinus due to sinusitis that occasionally occurs in, in the more chronic cases of sinusitis. So do you think that these cases have been implicated in recurrent sinusitis? So leaving purulent material, which is often inspissated in chronic cases within the conchal bully, could theoretically result in recurrent sinusitis. Because of the close associations between the structures, it is possible that bully empyema would predispose to sinusitis. It's also possible that the bully could fistulate into the sinuses. And in one of our reported cases, um, there was communication between the sinuses and the bully, which we attributed to fistulation from the sinus into the bulla, but could equally have been from the bulla into the sinus. We haven't seen this fistulation in any, any of the other cases we have subsequently dealt with. We suspect that probably more commonly cases of bulla empyema predisposed to chronic unilateral nasal discharge that could be misdiagnosed as sinusitis, so not treated effectively. A number of our cases were found to have inspissated material in the bully and or necrotic tissue or bone on their periphery that would also have predisposed to chronic unilateral nasal discharge and the clinical signs discussed earlier. Okay, well, I think that's about it for questions. Thanks for your time, Richard. No problem. My second guest today is Ebony Escalona. She's completed a PhD with Imperial College London and Liverpool Vet School under the supervision of Professor Chris Proudman and Professor Elaine Holmes, and this was funded by the HBLB. Ebony's written a paper entitled Dominant Components of the Thoroughbred Metabolome, characterised by NMR Spectroscopy, a Metabolite Atlas of Common Biofluids. For this study, she collected urine, faecal water and plasma from healthy racehorses and investigated the metabolite content of each sample to create a reference metabolome for the thoroughbred. So Ebony, I understand that systems biology encompasses the study of interactions within a biological system and metabolomics would fall into the same group as proteomics, transcriptomics and genomics. Can you tell us a little bit more about metabolomics? Yeah, absolutely. Well, simply put, metabolomics is, is the metabolic composition of a given sample. Um, and we often use the word metabolome, which is basically an extension of that. It's the multivariate sum of all those metabolite components in a given organism or 
or more simply within a given sample type like urine, plasma or feces. We also use the word metophenomics, which is very similar, but it's used to describe the metabolic response um, uh, when we're looking at perturbations <clears throat> through time or through therapeutic intervention or disease. Um, and these address the kind of the phenotypic changes at those small molecule metabolite levels. And as you said, systems biology encompasses all these other omic um, kind of technologies. But I think metabolomics is really interesting because it captures information not just from the host, such as genomics, but also from the environment. Um, as these meta you know, metabolite products, these end products, um, will be will come from host interactions, but also environmental interactions, such as external things, diet, um, stress, uh, therapeutic intervention. Um, so I think it's, it's really quite interesting. And, and as we're starting to see in human um, kind of work, we're really seeing that the gut microbe has a really important effect on whole health um, and can really influence our metabolome. Um, I think we're just realizing that that actually looking at this kind of gut microbial community um, can be very, very well done using kind of metabolomic techniques. So I understand in your paper you've assessed the metabolites found in urine, plasma and faecal water. Mm -hmm. How did you assess these metabolites? So there are a number of kind of analytical tools out there, um, but I chose to use nuclear magnetic resonance, and I'll refer to that as NMR from now on. Um, and there are other tools like mass spectrometry, which I can talk about later. But yeah, I used NMR to detect these metabolites um, from samples, as you said, that are quite kind of metabolite rich, are quite dense. Um, and NMR is great for many reasons, but it kind of simply, NMR kind of detects any molecule. And in this case, I was using hydrogen NMR, so any molecule containing hydrogen, so it's kind of like a universal detector. Um, it, it applies an external magnetic field to a sample, which kind of excites those samples. And certain nuclei, so certain kind of hydrogen um, interactions will absorb energy at certain frequencies. And that depends on the bonds within them, so it depends on the molecule type, if you like. And then this can be converted into a spectral pattern um, that relates to the chemical composition. So you get a very dense kind of spectral reading, which you can use um, mathematical modeling techniques to kind of tease out structural, structural um, information or metabolite identification with that. Um, and it's very quick to run, so you can, you can do lots and lots of samples um, in quite a short space of time. It's very reproducible and robust, um, and it doesn't destroy my samples. So as people, as any scientist knows, sometimes samples can be precious, um, and if you use it on one analytical run and something goes wrong, you, you've lost that. So the great thing is that it doesn't destroy my samples, so if, if I need to rerun things, I can. So you must have ended up with an absolutely massive amount of data. Absolutely, yeah. Did you compare between the samples uh, and look for metab common metabolites, or did you look just within each definition of the plasma or the faecal water? So looked at them in, in turn, really, to start with. Um, uh, and the first kind of the first series of runs would have been just ensuring that I wasn't kind of producing any abnormalities or any differences with regards to the instrument or sample run. So at first, we're just looking what is there and, and how do they move, if you like, what, how do these intensities move, and just checking that nothing was being done by my kind of analytical technique, if you like. 
Um, and then after that, it was running large samples um, to see, yeah, what is there. So just starting to create this catalogue. Um, and then once I'd kind of done that, I could start to look at them together and say, right, well, what similarities have we got within these different um, biofluids or biological matrices? Um, and what, what is unique? So we can start to see, well, urine might be really good at looking at the gut microbial component of the metabolites. Uh, plasma might end up being very good at looking at energy metabolites and, and fecal water might be really, really good at showing us kind of short chain fatty acids and, and, and that kind of thing. So it's, you start to see kind of which samples provide windows on different kind of metabolic functions, if you like. So you found 14 common metabolites mm -hmm. within fecal water, plasmin and urine. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What, what does that tell us? I think we've got to be very careful, I think I alluded to this in, in the paper, um, because my paper was looking at the dominant metabolites, and as I spoke about earlier, there are different kind of analytical techniques we can use, and NMR is really, really good, but it's not as sensitive as something like mass spectrometry. So I am identifying things that are visible via the NMR tools that I have used. So I have found 14 I can kind of um, confidently say I've assigned, but there may be more than that, uh, probably very likely to be more than that if I use a more sensitive tool. But it just starts to show us maybe the, the pathways that are common um, or essential between all systems in that in that animal. And a lot of those things that we found were amino acids, so your, your building blocks, your proteins, um, energy metabolites, glucose, lactate, and things like that, um, as well as a, a couple of, of gut microbial derived or, or co-derived um, metabolites. So it just starts to kind of build a picture of, of what what is core or ubiquitous within those those samples. And you found some interesting um, findings within urine mm -hmm. that reflected the host microbe interactions within the mm -hmm. body. Mm -hmm. Could you tell us a little bit about this? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think when you, when you first think um, about gut microbiota, you, you think of kind of the feces, which, which is kind of a usual thing to think about. But actually urine provided a really kind of neat window into this gut microbial interaction. Um, with the host, and as as we know, um, kind of urine is the, the metabolites or, or compounds in urine will come from the gut to the liver, and then through to the circulation and lymph, and, and will be excreted um, <clears throat> from the urine. <clears throat> and we found, um, yeah, a, a real host of, of, of metabolites there that weren't really found in, in high numbers or, or not at all within within plasma. And feces. Um, <clears throat> something around 30% of the metabolites that we identified, these dominant metabolites, you know, were gut microbial in origin or, or had at least a degree of metabolism um, needed by bacteria as well as the host to be, to be visible within these uh, samples. So do you have hopes for urine analysis um, for future work in disease intervention? Absolutely, yeah. I think it's important to state here as well that um, not necessarily to use it in isolation. It's incredibly interesting and, and, and incredibly informative with regards to the gut microbes. But I think, you know, feces is complementary too. Um, we maybe didn't find as many gut microbial metabolites as we thought in feces because um, a lot of those would have been absorbed prior to excretion in the feces. But um, there were lots of information with regards to our short-chain fatty acids 
which as we know in the horse is, is very, very important with regard to their energy requirements. So I think it's complementary to use these, um, these sample types. But absolutely, I think urine is really interesting also because it's non-invasive. Um, so we can, you know, free catch collect this, um, which makes, makes life easy or, or, or good in a, in a, in a, in a experimental setting, um, as well. And as we all know, colic and, and intestinal problems are huge, a huge issue for the equine population. So we, we can use, um, an easily collected biofluid to help us understand what's going on inside. Um, I think that, you know, that can be, that can be really interesting. And, and I'm doing further work into that with regards to dietary interventions and how we can maybe manipulate our, our gut bacteria um, using diet and, and the outcomes that we can see in the urine. And your plasma um, samples were compared to human metabolomes in your paper, and you said that they were the most consistent between species. Why do you think this is? I think if we're looking kind of at a mammalian level, we need high, high homeostatic constraints with our plasma. Um, to ensure that the body functions um, uh, and nothing kind of goes wrong. And unlike the other two samples that I talk about in this paper, um, it's not an excretory biofluid. So urine and feces is excretory. Um, there's going to be a lot more dilutional effects um, uh, and contamination and dietary and medical and gut microbial differences. So I think with regards to that, plasma will be more homogenous, if you like, between our mammal species, and it will be quite well conserved, just due to the fact that we have to kind of operate. So if any, there are any large perturbations that we might see in, say, urine, with a spike in the metabolite, that could have dire consequences um, in, a, in a plasma setting. So you've created the reference thoroughbred metabolome. What's the next step in disease intervention for you? That's a great question, um, and forms kind of the premise of my, of my thesis that I'm completing at the moment. Um, as I've said, this, this paper really provides that catalogue of metabolites, that reference point, that dictionary that I can then go and use, um, uh, as a baseline for further interventions. Um, I've also looked at kind of other risk factors for colic. And as we know, there is a link, a correlation between behavior. So could biting and something and and colic, and we don't really know why. Um, so I'm looking at a case control study of uh, thoroughbreds that have this stereotype behaviour versus matched controls in gender, age, diet, and exercise regime. Um, so I can then start to look at that metabolome and see, well, is there a different metabolic metabolome in correlation to that behavioural phenotype? I'm also looking at dietary interventions. Um, as we've said, that urine provides that nice window into the gut microbiota. So it's, it's an indirect, non-invasive way to have a look at what's going on um, at the functional level with those gut microbes. And by changing diets, how do we shift that phenotype or that kind of profile um, from, from the gut? Um, so we're in, we're in early days with regards to, to metabolomics and metabolomics, and, and we're not quite as far along as, as some of the stuff that's been done in humans. But I think it's a really interesting time. Um, and I think, as we've said, that the intestinal environment of the horse is essential for its kind of whole health. And if we can start to understand um, how that works and the measures in which we can maybe manipulate that, I think it's quite interesting, especially within the diet um, and pre and probiotic potential um, kind of uses within the horse. Um, 
Uh, and, you know, and in racehorses, we all know that they're not being kept as, let's say, naturally as, as the feral or, or wild horse. Um, and if we can start to manipulate their intestines to be, um, I'm using inverted commas, you know, normal um, kind of environment, then I think that's, that's really useful. How we make it a more healthy metabolome, if you like. Thanks for your insight into some cutting edge research in the horse. Oh, it's a pleasure. Um, good luck with it. Thank you.